Al-Jazeera podcast. Can the current ceasefire end fighting in Sudan? The country has been embroiled in war for more than a month. Despite many agreements, battles are raging in Khartoum and many other areas. So what will it take to persuade the warring sides to stop? I'm Mohamed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. Joining me in London is Nisreen El-Sayem, General Coordinator for Youth and Environment Sudan. She's the former chair of the UN Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change. In Cairo is Asil Jerais, Public Health Specialist and Civil Servant with Sudan's Federal Ministry of Health. In London is Dalia Abdelmunim, Sudanese political commentator. She fled the country during the fighting. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks for joining us today on Inside Story. Nisreen, let me start with you today. Um, This ceasefire that was brokered by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia between Sudan's army and the rapid support forces, how is it holding up so far? Um, Unfortunately, the ceasefire collapsed very big from the early morning hours uh, of today. My husband is still in Khartoum, and he uh, repeatedly uh, recorded uh, voice notes and uh, talked to me about hearing a lot of gun firing and a lot of bumping around him. Uh, In fact, uh, one hour ago, um, a MiG flight uh, um, were actually uh, dropped by the RSF from the army side, and uh, we saw a lot of videos where the two pilots had to um, actually use the, uh, hel- the parachutes to jump out of the of the MiG. Um, <clears throat> and it is escalating, unfortunately, not going down, as also um, the army announced that the RSF uh, right now reached the area where we actually have a lot of uh, gold reserved for the country, but also a lot of cash um, that was freshly printed uh, for the country. Uh, I think uh, we are now witnessing uh, a severe collapse of the ceasefire, although yesterday uh, many areas around Khartoum, Khartoum North and Omdurman was quiet. Um, and a lot of people were saying that it's the first time they sleep uh, for more than a month. Um, mm. Yet it's, it looks like some areas are not exactly in the same uh, wave. And um, now today, I think it's more escalating as more news are coming about um, massive pumping and massive clashes between mm. the RSF and, and, and the army. Uh, Asil, um, when the ceasefire was announced, some some call it a ceasefire, some have been calling it a temporary truce, but uh, the idea was that it was meant to guarantee the safe transportation of food and medicine for millions of people who are in desperate need, to create essentially a humanitarian corridor. Uh, Whether or not it completely collapses, do do you think that that this sort of humanitarian corridor can actually be achieved at this time? Um, Firstly, before um, this started, there was no way um, to provide any kind of services. But unfortunately, um, and as they say, the ceasefire or the truce is ongoing, um, the RSF has actually uh, broken into two hospitals in the last 24 hours, which is the Ahmed Ghassim hospitals. Um, They kicked out the patients. They stole uh, four ambulances today and yesterday. The Banjadid hospital went out of service, this uh, making 28 hospitals in Khartoum taken. 
uh, by the RSF and with more than 21 ambulances stolen. Um, the ceasefire or what's so-called the truce, um, if you ask me the one reason that it might not uh, be successful, it's that it did not um, include um, the evacuation of the soldiers of the RSF uh, from Khartoum. It is to be discussed and agreed upon later, but the violation will continue and the safe roads shall not be um, made if the RSF remains in the urban areas in Khartoum. Um, unfortunately, it's not only in Khartoum, the fight has erupted in Al-Ubayyid in Darfur. Um, yesterday, um, around five people were killed in Al-Ubayyid, 30 injured. Ubayyid hospitals are running out of service. They're running out of electricity. Um, surgeries are being made with phone uh, flashes. Um, other than that, it's not only that Darfur is out of service completely with the network being out, um, hospitals being destroyed. Um, and it's not just that, they're surrounding areas of uh, cities like Zilinji and they're terrorizing the people. They cannot access services. 40 children died out of electricity shortage in Darfur in the past few days. Mm. Um, so uh, I don't think this is successful in any way so far. Daria, I saw you nodding along to a lot of what Asil was saying there. She's describing horrific circumstances, especially on the humanitarian front, especially when it comes to the health care needs of, of millions of people who are trapped because of, of the fighting. Uh, did you want to jump in? Did you want to add to what she was saying? Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, she bas Asil basically said what I was going to say, that it's not just Khartoum that's being hit or not being affected. You know, it's this, the other part of the country, it's all, other cities are also really badly affected by what's happening. And Darfur has really seen a spike in attacks and clashes. And the number of those dead keeps going up. And already, you know, the infrastructure outside of Khartoum was, was very poor. And now with the continuing fighting, it's literally the infrastructure has been brought down to its needs. And in addition, there's been the looting of humanitarian supplies medical supplies. The MSF has been hit badly. They've had their cars uh, stolen, Medic, uh, you know, rape kits that were brought in to help the, the victims of the rape crimes that have been occurring have lost all access to that. So the truth is the truth in name only, because ever since the first day, you know, there's been no ceasefire, so to speak. There was relative peace, and that's I say that in quote unquote, in quotation marks. But in general, this because the ceasefire wasn't going to work if there was no implementation of accountability on both the, the RSF and the Sudanese army. And I keep hearing that they have methods in place, but we, we need methods now. We need action now. We need accountability now. They need to be held accountable for their continuous breaking of all these ceasefires. It's been, it's been more than a month. There's been no change in this in the let there's been no let up, no change in the current situation in Sudan. And it keeps getting worse. People have lost their livelihood. People who depend on daily incomes have nothing. People have lost their homes, their businesses. I think more than a million have been internally displaced, in addition to those who were already internally displaced from previous conflicts, let alone those who were able and lucky mm. enough to get out of the country. So it's a catastrophe. And I think it's, it seems that the international community is kind of dragging its feet a little bit in regards to how to, re to react to this uh, crisis, mm. when in fact they should have reacted yesterday, not today, not tomorrow. They should have reacted from, from day one. 
and the longer that it takes for them to react, the longer, it, the worse it becomes for those who are still in Sudan and even those who are outside, you know, because a lot of people outside, they have no income. How are they going to survive? When will they be able to go back? Can they go back? There's a lot of questions mm. and no one seems to have the answer to them. And no one seems to want to be able to, to provide those answers. Nisreen, to the point about the efforts by the international community or as many say, lack of, of efforts. Um, what do you say? Why do these ceasefires keep collapsing? And, and from your perspective, do international players or more international players need to be involved in the mediation efforts? Well, I think, um, to be honest, uh, first, I need to react a little bit on what Dalia mentioned um, in a minute. Um, so she was talking about accountability, and the question is who can put who into accountable. Um, unfortunately, in past years, uh, the RSF gained very big legitimacy, and it was the army itself who gave this legitimacy to the RSF uh, at the beginning. Um, so now who's going to uh, accountable who? Um, and regarding the international community, I think I always believe in proactive, and, and I think the international community um, could have actually uh, helped Sudan to avoid reaching this point at the beginning. Um, a lot of steps could have been taken. Uh, the moment we had the coup in, on the 25th of October 2021, um, a lot of steps could have been taken since that time. A lot of steps we, we've been talking since the beginning about the reform of the army, about the, about the, um, uh, the breaking of the, of the RSF uh, forces and joining the possible join to the one uniformed army. We've been talking since the beginning about protecting the civilians and training the police. Um, and, and the international community was very much more focusing on supporting the political processes that we both, I mean, I'm talking not about me and, and you only, but all of us here watching, we know that um, political processes cannot really protect the civilians unless they, there is um, a rule of law in place, unless if there is a real democracy in place, unless if there is um, an armed movement, an unarmed uh, body, which is normally the armies, the formal armies, that are protecting both democracy and the civilians. Um, I, I think um, all of the efforts being taken in place right now by the international community is rather trying to save the situation uh, that for me is unsavable. A lot mm. have been lost already and we are just trying to put a limitation on what's happening right now mm. and as they try to call it a damage control. Um, mm. And I can also I can also add that a lot of the international community, even the people who are now doing the mediation, are not serious enough in stopping the situation. And, and the, the clue and, and the, the evidence are very clear because they still uh, have a lot of leaders from both sides, from the army and from the RSF. And a lot of countries who are also part of the process mm -hmm. have the account, the money account, and a lot of resources that go going to RSF in their countries and they're not doing anything to stop it. Um, uh, uh, the army leaders are still hiding where they actually should be in front lines trying to um, Nisreen, damage control. I'm, Nisreen, I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, but I see Asil reacting and I, I want to let her jump in here too. And Asil, from your vantage point, do you think the more international actors need to be involved in the mediation efforts? And, and what about the African Union? Does it need to have a more prominent role in all of this? 
hundred um, percent. First of all, just to add to what um, Dalia and Nisreen were saying, um, currently there is no ceasefire. There is a uh, there is an apparent violation. And if you ask me, what is the reason? It's the lack of trust between the two parties, the two parties, the RSF and the SAF, and the lack of leadership. Apparently, they cannot control their soldiers on the ground. Hence, we cannot uh, come to a successful ceasefire. Uh, most of these troops and most of these soldiers are young children who've been trained to carry guns, but they have nothing and they understand nothing about the international humanitarian laws of war. And this is where we, fa we face problems. And if I may add, it is upon the UN, um, the UN Council, uh, Security Council, to actually work this time on creating an accountability framework. It is on the international community to work on restriction and on uh, on uh, and on stopping. As as Nisreen said earlier, it's who is funding RSF and who must stop. And again, if you ask me who is responsible and who should be the mediator, I would say, of course, the African Union. We have witnessed back in 2019 um, the successful uh, democratic transition, and it was the only party that actually took the opinion of the people into consideration, into uh, into the bargain of uh, having a civilian government. It's the African Union. It's its advantages of having common interest, uh, regional uh, similarities, mm. and of course um, the countries. Uh, of course, they they have more understanding. But also, I must say there. Is an absence of the international community, and not only in stopping or providing their statements, but in ensuring the rights of those who were, who are, who wants to migrate. Where are the Turkey countries from this? Those who had their passports shredded, those who are seeking refugees and have the ability to, but are not getting any response from those countries. Mm. Not to oppose or say or being in conflicting, but it was not the same scenario that happened uh, in Ukraine, where all the international community has stepped in. But there's a huge absence in the Sudanese uh, war that I cannot call a civilian war, as the RSF at this mm. moment are looting houses, killing and raping. And this will continue unless there is immediate actions and interventions from parties that are trusted and familiar to both parties mm. of RSF and SAF. Thank you. So, Dalia, Asil there was talking about a, a lack of trust being a major issue when it comes to actually trying to get past the differences when it comes to actually trying to mediate this uh, and that you need more effective actors involved in the mediation process as well, according uh, to Asil. So I want to ask you, from your vantage point, what would it take? What factors need to need to be combined here, come together in order to try to end the fight and to try to build trust, to try to get a lasting ceasefire? I mean, would something like sanctions work? Is, is that a way to go? What, what are the steps that need to be taken? I think, in, uh, absolutely, I think individual sanctions, for example, should have been put in place right after the coup in uh, 2021, but they weren't. And I think also the legitimization of both the RSF and Burhan should, have, should not have happened, but it did. It happened when they were included as part of the civilian government. It, was, it happened right after the coup, and it's continuing to happen during the transitional talks into a, for, into a civilian government. So sanctions is, I think, at this moment in time, sanctions are the best options that we have. It's the only thing that will bring them to the table and force them to, to acknowledge the fact that this cannot continue any longer. And I think it also matters that 
outside international parties that have invested interest with both sides need to understand that this that this will affect them negatively if the longer this conflict continues. I mean, uh, so it's it's easier said than done, of course, but it's something that has been done and it has been effective in the past. And I don't see, I don't understand why it's taking them so long to actually implement these sanctions. But I would also like to add a point to what Asil was saying about the violation of humanitarian international humanitarian um, conflict law. These violations have been have always taken place in Sudan. They were taking place in the Nuba Mountains. They were taking place in Darfur for decades, and no one cared about them because it didn't hit the center. But now, because it's coming to the center, all of a sudden we're saying. This shouldn't happen, but it's always been happening. And these two sides, no other way of fighting a war than by these violations. They do not abide by any law, whether it's regional, local or international. This is their method of this is their method of operation. And we need to understand that this will we will only get worse the longer this conflict drags on. And at this moment in time, for me personally, I think sanctions are the way to go and punitive and the there are measures in place that those who allow allow the two sides to continue, they should also, you know, the punishments can also reach to them or it can affect mm. them in one way or the other. Otherwise, you'll have, I mean, already we're seeing so many people trying to flee Sudan mm. and our neighboring countries themselves, they also have problems. Egypt has economic problems, Ethiopia, Chad. No one wants to see an influx of more people coming in and adding to their own press, to their own woes. But this is what's happening. It will continue to happen. And then you also have the influx of people internally. Like I said, there's right. no infrastructure right. in place. So how um, do we... So, yeah. Asil, let me ask you about one component of the humanitarian crisis uh, right now. Uh, the Red Cross has warned that uh, it would be impossible to relocate large numbers of Sudanese refugees streaming into neighboring Chad before the start of the rainy season in late June. What does that mean when it comes to contending with cholera, with malaria, with, with other factors? How much more difficult does that make the situation? Okay, right now we're speaking about 80 to 90,000 people since the start of the war that have tried to plead from Darfur. Um, this is a huge number, given that it's just been four weeks and the fights continue. Um, given that and putting comp in context, um, we in the Federal Ministry of Health in the Communicable Disease, we've been working, we have something called the emergency um, room for, um, for, for rainy season. And fortunately, Fortunately and unfortunately, the Federal Ministry of Health is trying to resume its work right now from River Nile, from Atbara. They've created a center there where the Federal Minister of Health himself is there. Um, this operation team will try to work on um, helping the health situation. But what is going to happen is that the re rainy season, other than it will increase the um, the the malaria cases, the cholera, the water will be uh, the, the it will be unclean. Um, actually, other than that, there are injuries that might happen. People might fall into the mud. They might break their hands. There is no availability uh, of services around the borders. There are no hospitals. I think it's one one hospital bordering from Chad to that war. And and the measures that we take in public health and communicable disease to stop and eradicate those diseases include um, giving bed nets, um, giving anti-cholera uh, medication, giving antibiotics. But are we 
able to even reach there. MSF had one of their people killed in Darfur just yesterday. Uh, they had their um, stores looted. The Federal Ministry of Health is trying to get there, but the RSF are, are building this wall against that area. Um, they're using humans as a shield. Uh, will, will we be able um, to reach there? That's a question uh, mm. to be answered, but it is uh, it is quite hard. And I'm, I'm not even speaking about this repercussion about those fleeing uh, from Darfur, but you should know that about 300,000 people have tried to flee the country. Mm. One million people are internally displaced right now. Can we provide for these people? Are the authorities able? 13 mm. states have been affected in Sudan right now. Um, mm -hmm. So we are trying the Federal Ministry of Health. The international community is trying. Just the UN has pledged $2.4 million uh, in humanitarian aid to Sudan. But currently, 50, more than 50% of mm. the Sudanese population are in need of humanitarian aid are and are under the poverty line. Can we help them all? Can we reach them all, especially those in the conflict areas? Till Asil, this day, I'm um, speaking as, from the ground. Asil, um, I'm, so, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but we, we're just starting to run out of time. And I want to I want to expand on what you were saying. I want to ask um, Nisreen about this as well. Um, Nisreen, the fact of the matter is the, the logistics when it comes to uh, the rainy season starting in, in late June. I mean, that just makes it exponentially more difficult to deliver aid, whether there's fighting going on or not, right? And it's just going to make it so much harder, correct? Well, um, I think you are forgetting a very important fact, which is that when the rainy season starts, it's actually the season for agriculture. And if we miss this season, then we will definitely have a famine this year. Definitely. Um, so if you are talking about a very bad situation right now, um, we are talking about disastrous situation in three or four months because simply the agricultural season was missed this year because of the conflict happening. Um, I mean, it is always very important to look ahead, not only to the problems we have right now, but the problems we will have even more bigger um, mm. in the very near future. I'm talking about three, four months uh, ahead of us. Um, of course, um, it is very much uh, difficult going to be doing anything, even doing camps for the refugees, even reaching some points because there is very poor infrastructure in terms of roads, in terms of transportation. So it, it, it will be almost impossible to reach a lot of places. Um, Having said that, it's also very important to highlight that Sudan is one of the very vulnerable countries to climate change, which even make the situation of the vulnerable people even worse. Uh, the past week, Sudan heated uh, a very high uh, degrees of, of temperature uh, compared to the, any other country in the African, country, uh, African continent and the region. Uh, it was the hot spot of the continent uh, for the past week. And I'm talking, I'm, I'm saying this because a lot of population in Khartoum and outside Khartoum had to spend all of these days in this very hot weather, almost 49 to 50 degrees with no electricity and no ACs and no fans. I'm sorry to interrupt you again. We just have got about a minute and a half left. And I just want to ask one last question to Dalia. Uh, Dalia, humanitarian organizations have said that the ongoing conflict in Sudan has had a devastating impact on women and girls. How vulnerable are women and girls right now? And please remember, we just have about a minute and a half left, please. Very Absolutely, especially the younger females. Uh, the rape uh, re reports of rape have been increasing. They're harrowing, and they don't have access to, to help, whether it's trauma help or rape kits or seeking medical help. They have no access, and it's just going to get worse because I think 
the more people are able to leave, the more the stories that will come out. And there's also women who are pregnant, are about to, due to give birth, you know, uh, where are the facilities, where are the medical facilities. It's just a nightmare for women, for females, whether they're uh, pregnant or young girls or whatever. You know, it's and unless the aid agencies are able to get to them and offer their help, which uh, my understanding is they aren't able to. There's a lot of them are still stuck in Port Sudan. They can't go out. Um, it's going to be dire. We're going to see, we're going to hear of horrific, horrific stories of women who are pregnant and have complications and girls who've been raped and probably falling pregnant or catching diseases or the, just the trauma that they've been through. And uh, it's mm. it's heartbreaking to, to, see, to, to know that so this is going to happen and it hard. is happening right now. So it's, it is heartbreaking indeed. Um, we, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave our conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Nisreen El Sayyam, Asil Jirais, and Dalia Abdul Munaim. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al Aishi, Katya Lopez Hodoyan, Fungi Nguyen, Riwa El Namir, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Deepak Pushkaran. The program was edited by Anirban Sarkar, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Thursday for our next episode. This week on The Take, who is Ron DeSantis? And what do his supporters' calls to make America Florida mean for the 2024 presidential election? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.